Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, the two easiest jobs in Australia right now are selling umbrellas in Tasmania and defeating Victorian Premier Dan Andrews in the state election due in November 26. The former job is probably already covered and we hope our Tasmanian viewers are staying dry in this deluge. But the latter job, taking on Dan Andrews, is being unbelievably botched by Matthew Guy, the leader of the state coalition. I contacted two Liberal candidates this week asking them to come on the show and discuss the countless catastrophic issues facing the state. Both declined because the party had gagged them. Gagged them during an election campaign. The word from inside the party is that candidates are being told, quote, the media is not your friend. For media read free speech. They're afraid to engage in debate and they are afraid to be tricked into portraying themselves as anything but a slightly lighter version of the hopeless incumbent. It's absolutely laughable. A political party that should be defending free speech is instead running away from it. You couldn't devise a more flawed way to win a democratic election if you drove around your electorate in a Sherman tank giving Nazi salutes to little old ladies. The depressing thing is that Andrew's record is arguably the most destructive and secretive in Australian history. Deposing him should be a walk in the park. Let's list his many wonderful achievements, shall we? He botched the hotel quarantine program in 2020 because he outsourced security to a dodgy company from Sydney that's since gone broke, which led to the deaths of more than 800 people. A subsequent inquiry never identified who made the fateful decision to hire the security company, and Andrews himself couldn't remember. In July, the state's corruption watchdog released a report describing widespread malfeasance in the Labor government. It was described by the state ombudsman as, quote, a catalogue of unethical behaviour, ranging from the hiring of unqualified people into publicly funded roles, using those roles to support factional work, nepotism, forging signatures, bullying, and attempts to interfere with the government grants process, unquote. Andrews, who wasn't personally implicated in any of this, admitted the Labor Party had committed, quote, absolutely disgraceful behaviour, unquote. For once, I can believe him. Andrews was in 2019 investigated by the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission for, quote, unquote, suspected corrupt conduct in a pay deal with the United Firefighters Union during his first term in office. That union is now campaigning against Andrews because it can't get an 8.6% pay deal. The list goes on. People dying waiting for ambulances while the government spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on diversity offices for Ambulance Victoria. Two potentially devastating ombudsman reports into the mishandling of the pandemic, buried until after the election. A mum arrested in her pyjamas for posting on Facebook. Police shooting unarmed protesters in the back with rubber bullets. The deals with the Chinese Communist Party that compromised national security and had to be shut down by the federal government. 
racking up $100 billion in debt while growing the biggest public service in the nation. I could go on. Andrews suspended MPs from Parliament who refused to disclose their vaccine status during the pandemic. We were told at the time that the vaccines were stopping the spread. Then we were told they weren't doing that, but were stopping people getting sick, which also wasn't true. This week, there was more compelling evidence, which has been accumulating ever since the vaccines were rolled out, of a link between the vaccines and deaths from heart disease. And Pfizer has finally admitted this week that it rushed the vaccine out without testing it if it actually did what it was claimed to do, which is stop transmission. You couldn't make this stuff up. Given all that, imagine how much fun Matthew Guy or any of his team of election candidates could have with footage like this. To be properly protected, you need three doses. That's what the experts tell us. <laughs> really, Dan? Exactly who are these experts, mate? Whoever they are, they told Dan it was finally okay to open up the state this week. Not because the vaccines work and not because the virus has gone away, but because everyone is waking up to the lies. Everyone, that is, except the people running the Victorian Coalition's campaign to win the state election. The situation is even worse in Western Australia, where the government is still pretending that COVID is an existential threat. The Mark McGowan government will this week pass the Emergency Management Amendment Bill, which extends the sort of draconian emergency powers most of us thought were now history. The bill gives so-called COVID officers the draconian power to break into houses and cars without a warrant. Nationals MP says, one of the Nationals MPs says, quote, rather than ending the state of emergency, which has been in place for more than 900 days, these new laws will allow it to continue for another two years with reduced oversight, unquote. Do you think Dan Andrews will be any less draconian after he wins on November 25? It's not too late, Matthew Guy, man up, mate and start acting like the leader of a conservative alternative. As Karl Marx once said, all you've got to lose is your chains. Well, our governments spend a collective $26 billion a year and rising on our school system. What we get in return is not great value for money. According to the Program for International Student Assessment, the ability of the average 15-year-old Australian kid to read has been steadily declining for 22 years. In maths, standards have been declining for 19 years and in science for nine years. You can understand why. Professional educationalists don't worry about tradition anymore. Instead, they fill the curriculum with untruths about our colonial history and rubbish about the planet dying and fill schools with teachers who think discipline is a dirty word. My next guest is Catherine Burblesing, a brilliant teacher from Britain who saw through the delusions of modern school education 12 years ago. Here she is addressing the Conservative Party conference in 2010. I have come here today to expose some of the truths about the education system. My experience of teaching for over a decade in five different schools has convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that the system is broken because it keeps poor children poor. In 2014, Burble Singh opened Michaela Community School in a relatively poor part of northwest London. Its motto is knowledge is power and its MO is zero tolerance for talking in corridors, using mobile phones and failure to do homework. The emphasis on formalities ensures the school runs smoothly and the kids are focused on learning. Burble Singh is often referred to as Britain's strictest headmistress, a title of which she's particularly proud because it gets results. Last year, 82% of final year students were accepted into the top level Russell Group universities, including two to Cambridge. Burble Singh is visiting Australia as a guest of the, of the Centre for, uh, for Independent Studies this month, and I'm very pleased to say she joins me now from the school in London. Catherine, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Catherine, the evidence is everywhere that schools that lack discipline are failures. Why do so many schools and education departments persist with this model? Because it feels bad to, to instill discipline. I think every parent knows this, actually. You know, when your child is misbehaving, you, you, sometimes you want to sit down and you want to be friendly with them and, and you feel awkward sometimes telling them off uh, or putting them on the naughty step or when you threaten that they're not going to be able to go to the cinema on Friday, you know, evening as, as you plan. You know, when it comes closer to Friday, you think, oh, I might go back on that because you feel bad about it. And we tend to think that people who are more compassionate are, are kinder in this way to children by letting them off. But I would argue that actually it's compassionate to hold the line because if you don't hold the line with children, they end up spinning out of control and they are the ones that suffer. So as a teacher, for instance, if a child comes from a poor family, uh, is living on a council estate, isn't, uh, perhaps his dad isn't around and he isn't bringing in his homework, you as a teacher think, oh, poor thing, he's got this difficult home life. I'm not going to give him a detention for not having his homework done. But the problem is that child falls further and further behind over time and then in the end might leave school functionally illiterate and functionally enumerate, as so many children do. And I'm not exaggerating. You know, you're looking at 20% of children, and it'll be the same in Australia, who are leaving school functionally illiterate and functionally enumerate. And it's far more mean to send a child out into the world where they're going to be struggling with their reading and writing than it is in the moment to hold them to account and make sure that they then get into the habit of doing their homework. It, it, it's, the, it's the feeling of unfairness. It's not fair that some children have it harder than others. And I agree, it isn't fair. But in the end, if you lower your standards for those children, it's the children who will suffer in the end. What are, what's the home conditions of the students at your school like? I mean, you've, you've raised their level and their expectations very high, but, and it's easy to forget through the, the pictures yes. that we see of your students, they all look like they come from, you know, reasonably wealthy middle-class families. What, what are their home lives like really? Yeah, so we're in the inner city. And so we get a typical inner city intake here. Um, there are situations with dealing with kids outside with knives, um, kids who, uh, you know, will come turn up at the school with masks on, on bicycles, waiting to beat somebody up, you know, kids who are stealing mopeds, Kill, kids. I mean, we're in the inner city, you know, one of the kids, one of the local schools a couple of years ago made a, 
a video about a gang in South London. The South London gang came up and killed him. You know, to North London. Like, I, like there, we have serious issues. So is it not a case of um, we have an easy intake? But by no means do we have an easy intake. I have situations where I've got parents who uh, might turn up demanding their phone back because the phone's been confiscated. I had to build a glass wall in the reception to stop them leaping over the counter to attack staff. Like, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking real issues. So, um our kids, look, we have a variety of kids. We've got uh, some kids who, who have got very supportive families, and we've got other children who, who come from much more challenging backgrounds. Um, but what we find with all of them is that they've all raised their game. They, are, they all are going to leave us functionally numerate, functionally literate. Our results are some of the best in the country. Um, we do really well with them because we are traditional. So we, we, we stand at the front of the class. We, the adult is the authority in the room. We lead the learning. Sometimes you'll see in a more modern classroom, desks are facing each other. So the children are leading the learning themselves. That's what's called child-centered learning. And the teacher might walk around amongst the desks as a facilitator of learning instead of as a teacher. And they keep the children on task instead of leading the learning themselves. So that's something we don't do. We are the people leading. We are the authority. We're the authority when it comes to discipline too. So one of the things that we have that people find strange is that our corridors are silent. The children walk in single file very quickly to their lessons. And within less than two minutes, they are in their lessons learning. And people might think, well, why are you being so cruel? They imagine I'm the strictest headmistress is what they call me in Britain. And um, they imagine that I'm walking down the corridors with whips and chains. And obviously that is not what's going on. You know, <laughs> what's going on is the children are moving it means that if you've got a child who has the reading age of a six-year-old, but his chronological age is actually 11 years old and you need to catch him up, well, you want him in the lessons for as long as possible. And if he's spending his time wandering around corridors, getting lost, be going to the loo, doing whatever, you know, like you don't want that. You want them in lessons, quickly learning. And that's what we do. We maximize our time in lessons here, which, you know, these small changes for teachers and for the leadership in your schools. I would stress that it's not just about the teachers. It's about the principals in your schools embracing this idea of having really high standards. And even though it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, it makes us feel like, oh, am I being mean? Actually, you're being kind because that is what's going to help your most disadvantaged children to succeed. Well, that's a good description of the culture in the school. Let's talk about the culture within education departments and which emanates essentially from politicians. We found in Australia that not even conservative politicians are concerned about this. And I mean, uh, education in Australia might not be as, as, as dire as it is in some parts of Britain, but it is, it is alarmingly bad here as well. But what, we're having trouble getting through to conservative politicians here. I want to play a little uh, extract from that same speech in 2010. Um, here's the cut now. Because many of the necessary changes require right-wing thinking. And we teachers instinctively reject such developments because of our loyalty to the left. What does it take to get conservatives fired up about these educational standards, Catherine? Yeah, well, I understand your premier, uh, Mr. Perrottet, mentioned us um, on, on somewhere. Anyway, so <laughs> the, the 
some of your politicians are uh, interested in what we're doing, which is uh, interesting. Um, I think that uh, society generally has moved uh, very much to the left in its uh, understanding of what we expect of children and of families. And um, I think we all need to remember what it is to be a social conservative, because it used to be the case, I'd say, that even the left were social conservatives. We were all social conservatives 50, 60 years ago, (laughs) Um, people on the right and the left. And these days, we've sort of lost that in society. And so it's hard for schools to then pick up these values because we've lost them in society. So what are those values? Things like believing in personal responsibility, uh, not wanting to be a victim, and that even though life might be difficult for you and you have lots of obstacles in front of you, I'm not saying those don't exist, and I'm not saying life is fair because it's very unfair for people, but that there is a sense of personal responsibility and resilience that you are installing in, in your kids so that when they hit those obstacles, they don't think, oh gosh, life is so hard for me, I'm poor, I'm black, I'm, uh, uh, I, my dad isn't, isn't around, uh, you know, whatever it is, my mom's an alcoholic, you, you don't think, well, it's because of all these reasons that I then can't succeed. That what you think is, I'm building up my backbone. I'm going to get over this obstacle. They're going to throw whatever they throw at me, but I'm grabbing onto personal responsibility and I'm doing something with my life. I'm going to own it, you know? And th- that that con- small C conservative value, I think, has been lost a bit in our societies in the West, I would say. Um, so similar here in Britain as it is in Australia. Um, also, the sense of duty that you would have because social conservatives don't just think about the individual. They also think about other people. And we teach our children very much about a sense of duty towards your classmates. If you talk, you're not just letting yourself down, you're letting the whole team down because that means the whole team has their lesson interrupted and their less their learning is being taken away from them because of your behavior. So narrating things to children where they understand they both have a sense of personal responsibility for the way they behave, but they also have a duty towards others, that they don't want to bring shame on their family. The sense, you know, once upon a time, we all felt shame. These days, that that value has sort of disappeared, that there's a sense of personal shame on how I behave. If I behave badly in my lesson, I'm bringing shame on my family. I'm bringing shame on myself. I'm bringing shame on my whole class because we don't want the kind of reputation of being a badly behaved class. And if their form tutor, their pastoral leader is talking to them in this way, you'd be amazed at the way that enthuses a child to think, yes, I'm representing my family. I'm representing my form that's what I wanted to yep. ask, actually. How difficult is it to drill this into kids, especially kids from, you know, disadvantaged backgrounds where those immutable characteristics that you were describing are drilled into them as sort of victim status? Do they do they lap this up easily or is it a, a, an obstacle? Yes. Yes, they do. You know, the, the reason why self-help books are so popular is because they're pushing all of these ideas. That's what self-help books do. They talk about all of this stuff. And people love it. So do children. And if they're immersed in that kind of culture, they love it. And the thing is, they are happier for it because they then start seeing the success. And they, they're total, they embrace it. They're immersed in it. They're successful because of it. And so it just becomes the culture of the school. And it's what everybody does. Um, and so all of us, it's not just the, the children, it's the teachers too. 
we all take personal responsibility. My teachers, we're all there. Oh, that was my fault. You know, that went wrong because of me, but I'll do it differently next time. You know, we all want to be able to feel like that where you're not, where you're not trying all the time to just care about what things look like. I find too often in the modern Western world, we care about what it looks like as opposed to what it really is. And we're not interested in truth enough. Um, so we care, do I look like I'm being politically correct on this? Do I look like the kind of person who cares about, you know, certain, uh, oppressed groups as opposed to, am I actually doing something with my life where I'm making the world into a better place, you know? And that, that is, that can be hard sometimes for people to talk about because they would prefer really to talk about what things look like as opposed to how things really are. Well, the pressure to, to think about thing, the way things look like is just overwhelming. So the work you are doing, Catherine, is just brilliant. We're looking forward to seeing you in Australia. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's the inspirational Catherine Burblesing from Michaela Community School in London, who is visiting Sydney this month as a guest of the Centre for Independent Studies. To get tickets to her speech, go to cis.org.au. Now, graffiti scrawled on election posters is almost always of the juvenile variety. A candidate's fake smile brought down to earth with a Hitler mustache or devil's horns, that sort of thing. Generally not worth a second glance, let alone a photo in a metropolitan newspaper. But this one in the Mer Melbourne Herald Sun today caught my eye. This is a poster for Labor's Cat Theophanus, the daughter of former Labor State Minister Theo Theophanus, who is defending the inner Melbourne seat of Northcote in the forthcoming state election. If you look closely, you will see that the graffitist had a bit more on his or her mind than the usual aesthetic gags and Nazi allusions, although those jokes were made as well. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, this graffitist's primary complaint specifically refers to life under Theophanus's draconian government for the past two years. Fair enough, it's been a long time since Victorians got a chance to tell the government how they felt, and some of them have much to discuss. But how did Theophanus respond? She was outraged. The vandal also tore down a poster from outside a government facility called the Aboriginal Women and Girls Sport and Wellness Centre. Theophanus said this was racist and sexist, of course. She said, quote, To these cowards, let me say this. You do not frighten us. You will not deter us. You only steal our resolve to fight for Northcote and for the future of our community. This type of vandalism has no place in our democracy, unquote. Talk about a tin ear, but then again, this is an inner Melbourne electorate. Theophanus holds it with only a slim 1.7% margin, and the Greens will give her a run for her money on, auction, on election day. So all this graffitist has really done is provoke Theophanus into spouting platitudes and outrage about hate symbols. Whoever wins this particular contest, the normal residents of Northcote, if there are any, will be the ultimate losers. 
Okay, let's finish off the week with the usual chat about all the big issues with Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre and host of Nick Cater's Battleground here on ADH-TV every Friday night at eight. And the topic at the top of the list that hasn't received nearly enough attention is what fresh commitment Australia needs to make at the COP27 Climate Gab Fest in Egypt next month. As all self-respecting climate delegates know, arriving at one of these events without some new economy-destroying policy to wave about is like arriving at a teal party fundraiser in a big W flanny and Ugg boots. Albo has thrown a dart at the policy board and landed on, wait for it, cow farts, which apparently changed the weather. Who knew? Let's get Nick in to get to the bottom of this earth-shattering issue. Nick, welcome. Okay, Fred, that's the end of the puns, I think. Good to see you. Yeah, anyway, good, good to, to see you too, Nick. Yeah, let's turn this cow around, shall we? Nick, now apparently we're gonna <laughs> apparently we're gonna save the planet by stopping cows burping and farting. How do we how are we gonna do that? Well, as you know, animal ruminants, I think they're officially known as, it's a big issue. I've been ruminating on them for quite some time. <laughs> Look, they, it's, an, it's another thing where they latch on to something, you know, that they go, oh, yes, we understand that. We can see how cow farts can, you know, actually destroy the planet. And, and we're going to latch hold of that. And that's going to be the thing for the next next year that we're going to go on about. But, of course, when you, you know, any scientific analysis of it shows that it is, Go, strangely enough, a lot more complicated than the left say, as usual. I mean, the, there are a lot of, there's, there's, a, there's a whole cycle, obviously, where cows are involved, where ruminants go back into the soil and produce nitrogen, and that helps the grass grow more, and that becomes more carbon absorbent. So, you know, the idea that, that just, you know, do, for cows to do what they've always done is, is absolutely a negative, and we've got to stop it immediately. That's just part of this obsessive mindset that is. the woke left have now. You know, they land on something. Oh, that's it. That's the one thing that's going to save us from disaster. The disaster we're convinced is going to happen somehow. Um, but yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I was being, I was being facetious. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I was just saying there is a real danger behind it, though, of course, because it does, it is a real attack on our agriculture sector and particularly our livestock industry. They have enough problems with all the you know, the animal rights people going on about, um, you know, live, live, live export trades and so forth, you know, which is very often just, just a, a pretext to try and shut them down. So we've got to be very careful. The livestock sector is very important, obviously, for the Australian economy. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, we can joke about it all day, but there are farmers who will suffer as a result. I mean, I was being facetious at the start by saying that, you know, whoever the delegates are at, the, at COP27, they need some policy to wave around because it's almost like a ticket to entry. But, uh, mm. you know, the, the policy, in fact, will be, um, apparently, apparently the POMs have invented a, a mask that stops them burping or absorbs their burps or something. But uh, I think the policy in Australia is to reduce livestock. And that is a very serious proposal. Exactly. And it's counterproductive in the end. Um, and look, the technology gets us a long way. I mean, there's a great company in Tasmania that's producing a product made out of seaweed that you mix out with animal food. A lot of farmers are doing it and that does reduce, you know, methane emissions. Uh, but, and, and because methane's not like carbon dioxide, it's, it, it doesn't hang around. You know, it's, it's sort of, as we know, you know, it can be deadly for a very short period of time and then it, then it dissipates, which is unlike. So it's actually not a long-term threat 
to the uh, to the atmosphere at all. It's a short-term issue. So all these details get lost, of course. But there is definitely, and, and this is part of it, isn't it, Fred, a sort of a, a sort of campaign on to force us all to be vegan. You know, they won't be happy until that happens. And Indeed, then yep. at that point, I suppose they'd probably declare that peanuts or lentils were out of bounds for some reason and we'd be back to eating flies or something. But yeah. it, 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 it is almost... The real food fad obsession they've got with us giving up meat for completely un, unreasonable reasons. Yeah, these things never affect the, the, the soy crop or, you know, whatever else, you know, alpha sprouts or whatever else the greenies are eating these days. Um, mind you, they, they're, they're pretty hot for cockroaches and crickets these days and there's plenty of those. I wonder if they fart it's, and it's burp much. Well. <laughs> yeah. How much and methane comes out of it? Sorry? <laughs> it's a cost thing as well because the war on on the poor by going for this stuff because you know they rely on uh, you know cheap food you're feeding a family of four on a tight budget your mortgage is just going up you know your, your mortgage payments have gone up by 40 percent since april you know you you, you, have, you can't afford to look around for the best looking tofu burger you know <laughs> that's you, right you, you just have to buy what's on offer in woolworths and and if if you know we produce food very efficiently here and that that's a great benefit of of ordinary people now, earlier tonight, I talked to British school headmistress Catherine Bermelsing about declining education standards, including in maths. But, Nick, there was a reassuring sign this week that all is not lost yet in Australia as far as maths goes. Here's a picture of two Extinction Rebellion protesters gluing their hands to a Picasso painting at the National Gallery of Victoria. The banner in the foreground reads... Climate chaos equals war plus famine. That's pretty conclusive maths, don't you think, Nick? <laughs> I think they need to go back to school, Fred. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd, maybe that's that advanced maths, which I didn't do. But no, it's make, calculus. So the climate yeah. <laughs> change equals war plus famine. Um, no, no. And uh, I don't, they probably didn't concentrate in arts class either. I wouldn't no, have thought they might they have didn't. gone to admire the painting rather than try and defile it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how they always, they always seem to pick Picassos for some reason. I'm not sure. But anyway, well, well, yeah. George Orwell warned us in the novel 1984 that one day we would be tortured into agreeing that two plus two equals five, but not even <laughs> he envisaged we'd one day be browbeaten into conceding that mild weather fluctuations equal military conflict and a lack of food. Maybe we don't have enough cows, yeah, Nick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they want to. They want to always add their latest, latest little passion onto it. I, I, I think I pointed out the story to you earlier in the week. It was a, a report that said that the transport industry was struggling to reduce its emissions fast enough because of lack of gender diversity. <laughs> so, you know, put more women in the transport sector, it's supposed to reduce emissions. And I puzzled over that. I think I've got the answer. I think that, you know, women tend to be less lead-footed than men, probably, when they're driving vehicles. But, but, but the idea get, of putting their various obsessions together... <laughs> well, oh, don't say that in my household. But, yes, uh, you know... It, 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 it's like a weird kind of, you know, mythical belief in forces, isn't it? I mean, what could, what connection could you possibly logically draw between gender diverse and diversity and emissions 
reductions in the transport sector. Like, that's just beyond me. I don't quite see the link there. But in their minds, because both these things are good, reducing emissions are good, gender diversity are good. Uh, therefore, if you're not reducing emissions fast enough, it must be because the bad thing is happening. Lack exactly, of gender diversity. exactly. It's it, all it, a... it, it, But this passes, I mean, it's, you can laugh, but it passes for serious debate yes. in some newspapers and websites. Because it's just it, incredible. Well, as you said, it is religious, Nick. I mean, this stuff has replaced religion and patriotism, in my opinion. And I mean, I found a, an instance a few weeks ago uh, that was broadcast on the ABC where they found that increases in CO2, which is the, 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 the satanic uh, gas of our times, actually helped spread COVID. So, you know, I mean... <laughs> The, the left always find these evil forces are interlinked and um, they will defy any logic to do so. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty, um, pretty alarming. Yeah, well, in our book, of course, we think, you know, one evil, of course, is flat beer. We hate a flat beer. So we're in favour of CO2. You know, exactly. the same logic. We want more exactly. CO2 beer. Exactly. It, it yeah. is. It, 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 <laughs> You know they never do the they never do the, the the they never do the hard work and actually look at the science, the engineering, the economics, and the detail of that. Which is why I was impressed with that young lady Zeon Light. So I think we both met at the CPAC conference. You know, former um, uh, Extinction Rebellion spokeswoman who actually looked at the science, genuinely looked at it, looked at the engineering, and came to the conclusion that if you want zero emissions, then Nuclear power is the answer, and uh, she's. She, it, what was so exceptional about it? She stood out amongst that generation because she'd actually gone away and looked at the detail of it, yeah. done the hard work instead of going around the state of uh, energy illiteracy. You know. Yeah, she stood out at CPAC too. I mean, CPAC was was mostly um, kind of lifelong and died in the died in the wool conservatives, but here was a, a former Extinction Rebellion uh, speaker amongst them. And what, what impressed me most about her was she got up on stage and said, I was wrong. And I'm now traveling the world yeah. trying to correct the mistakes that I made. I mean, you know, that's, that's uh, admitting that you're wrong is, is a part of being human, I think. Now let's talk about the voice to it parliament. Um, the voice mm. to parliament is getting a lot of corporate support these days. Nick, what do you think these companies are up to? Well, it's funny, isn't it? They're all coming in on the one side, right? You yeah, think, that's a coincidence, you know, isn't it? Look at the polling, of course, it comes out various ways, but it, clearly the country is divided on this question. Um, a lot of people haven't made up their minds yet, but you, you'd think that the, the corporates would be the same, you know, but no, they all come down on one side. And um, they think that they can... I picked up on a memo from one of the big four accounting companies to its staff saying, we must remember we have a powerful voice, we as the company. Well, that's rather worrying to me. It's all part of this woke capitalism thing, isn't it, where they... The corporate corporations put their might behind cause X, you know, same-sex marriage or the voice, whatever it is, Black Lives Matter, of course, in the States, and then try and use that muscle to force everybody else to come on board. And of course, it backfires big time. I mean, it backfired in Brexit. There was a big corporate push, United Corporate push for Britain to stay in Europe. And the British people made British people, I think, even more suspicious of, of, uh, of the whole mm. anti-Brexit campaign. And the same, I think, could be said uh, in, in America to some extent. These things do backfire. So I think that if they think they're helping the cause, they're not. 
And but anyway, it just worries me that 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 corporations now see that as our role. I mean, in the end, you know, the CEO of you know whatever company it is who decides this, he 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 only is entitled to one vote. Right? He's like all the rest of us. He's only got one decision to make, and that's which way am I going to vote. He shouldn't think he's responsible for making some great moral decision for his entire staff, customers, and everybody else in the country. But that's the sort of arrogance that's invaded the corporate sector nowadays, and it's very unpleasant. And it does leave, you know, the, the no case in this. You know, there should be a no case, obviously. And it, under normal practice, it would be funded by the government. They put money to fund the no case. They put funded fund education campaign for the yes case. Now, it looks like Albanese is not wanting to do that, which means that the yes case is getting all this corporate money right now. It's getting a bit of government money too, actually. And you're getting these flash adverts on the screen. I mean, beautifully produced, lovely sunsets, Uluru, et cetera, et cetera. But just putting one side of the argument. And yet these adverts are telling us, Fred, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> okay, let's have that conversation, but let's actually hear both sides of it, for goodness sake. Well, speaking of the other side, I mean, there is actual um, active censorship of, our, of Jacinta Price, for example, who is against The Voice. Yeah. Yeah, we raised this last week. I mean, this is frightening that Facebook is, is, has actually taken videos, of, including Jacinta Price, including uh, Anthony Dillon was in that one too, as well as J Senator James McGrath, decided because they're putting the no case, we're taking them down, they're against our policy. That's really scary. If, 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 if this, this bunch of, you know, tech heads, know-it-alls in Silicon Valley are deciding they can intervene into a, in our what should be a purely domestic debate between Australians about a, a legitimate uh, question on changing the constitution, just butt out of it. It's none of your business. You haven't got a, Facebook does not have a vote in this and should not therefore think it has a voice in this, let alone, you know, decide it's going to take the take down the voice of a, a, a brave Indigenous woman who's been elected to parliament. It, in, it's wrong on so many levels, Fred, but I've decided that the, how do we remedy this? Well, the prime minister's got to pick up the phone to, 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 to California and tell these people to butt out. Just tell them, I'm the, I'm the Prime Minister of Australia and if you persist down this path, you know, you won't be able to operate in Australia the way you do now. You're here as, you know, you're, our, you're here as our guests and we want you to behave like that. Well, <clears throat> the ace up his sleeve there, was, he could threaten to stop posting selfies on Facebook. That had snapped their attention. <laughs> Now, very quickly before you go, Nick, we've only got a few seconds left. You've got the esteemed British historian and former Supreme Court Judge Lord, Lord Jonathan Sumption on your show tomorrow night. What did he say? Tonight, I'm sure. Well, tomorrow I talked night, to him yeah. a lot about the lockdown, obviously, about, about the... Uh, he, he was very strongly opposed, as you know, to the authoritarian measures that were taken in Britain and here. But particularly, I talked to him about policing, because to me, that was the canary in the coal mine. You know, we expect our police to behave... Uh, in like citizens in uniform, not to not to be the enforcers of state diktat. And when the police force crossed the line here, as it clearly did, that to me was the warning sign that something was, was very wrong. But uh, of course, Lord Sumption goes into this with a lot more intellectual rigour and depth than I can possibly manage. So uh, well, just, I'm just, looking uh, forward to suggest it. Suggest to people it's a good idea to watch this show tomorrow night, eight o'clock, ADH TV. Fantastic, Nick Cater. Thanks for your time. Good. Thanks, Fred. That's Nick Cater, the host of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday night on ADH-TV. Now, before I go, right-wing US commentator Alex Jones has been hit with an order to pay almost a billion dollars 
for saying on his InfoWars channel that the mass shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut 10 years ago was fake. 20 children and six adults were murdered in that attack. Some of Jones's followers took Jones's conspiracy theory so seriously that they abused the victim's relatives and desecrated the, their graves. Jones has conceded he was wrong and apologized repeatedly. This is yet another disturbing and illogical attack on free speech. Jones didn't kill anyone, nor did he commit any of the, of the abuse alleged in the court case. But he is rich, so he is a more lucrative defendant than the dumb thugs who supposedly took his stupid comments a step further. And he is a conservative commentator with a huge audience, so he needs to be shut down. The establishment will use any trick it can to achieve its objective of closing down debate. On this occasion, they did it by exploiting the indisputable fact that Jones was, on this occasion, unbelievably insensitive towards grieving families. But a billion dollars? Social media was awash today with comments saying if that's worth a billion, how much are the pharmaceutical companies up for for misleading, misleading half the world's population into being jabbed with a useless and sometimes life-threatening non-vaccine? Jones is saying that he hasn't got the money, but isn't in a hurry to pay it anyway. He said, quote, we're not scared, we're not going away, and we're not going to stop. For hundreds of thousands of dollars, I can keep them in court for years, unquote. Free speech is in a lot of peril. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company this week. Don't forget to watch Nick Cater's Battleground tomorrow night at 8pm, followed by Save the Nation with the mellifluous Professor David Flint. Have a great weekend and I'll see you on Monday at 9. Good night.